Let's read together. Our text today is from Luke chapter 20. And y'all, it is something. It is Luke chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 27. Read through 38. If you want to follow along, there'll be verses on the screen behind me. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question, teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second one married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her. Then this continued with all seven of them who all died without children. Finally, the woman also died. Of course. Um, I added that part. Verse 33. So tell us. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God, children of the resurrection. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for, all, for they are all alive to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we, uh, I thank you. I, I thank you for this room, and I thank you for these people, as I do every week, but I just, I just ask you to come. I ask you to send your spirit here to be with us. Um, I pray that in our time together that um, uh, as we look at your word that we would learn more about you and more about ourselves in light of you. We thank you that you are a good and patient teacher to us. That you are with us always, for us always. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, all right, so uh, here at Springbrook, we follow what's called the lectionary. And um, so if you don't know what the lectionary is, basically what it is is um, years and years and years ago, a group of people got together and they created, um, uh, it's, it's like a calendar for the church, and it included Bible verses. There's a daily version and a weekly version of text that, that the church would follow along with so that everybody kind of was in the same place at the same time. Uh, and so we follow it. This, uh, it's this way to read and preach through the scriptures. It, it exists on a three-year rotation. And so every Sunday, uh, whether you're aware of it or not, our, our texts are chosen for us. So if you if you have your bulletins in your seat, and you can see every week we have the scriptures. So it's like a spoiler. This is what we're going to talk about uh, next Sunday or things like that. And so... Um, Every every week they're chosen for us, and I love this. I, I love this is our first year to follow the lectionary, and I have um, loved it. I love it um, for lots of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons I love it is because um, 
It means it sort of connects us with other churches all over the world. Like, um, uh, it means that we are in the same text every single Sunday with churches all over the world and all kinds of churches. Uh, Catholic churches and Methodist churches and Anglican, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. There are all kinds of churches that use and follow the lectionary. And so when we, when we do this, we get to be um, alongside them. We're alongside our friends in Blount County. My, my friend Doug, the priest that I talk about all the time, I love that he and I are preaching the same things on Sunday. So I can call and be like, what? Or, yeah. Um, and, and so I love it. I, I love this. It, it, it feels binding. Like it binds us to other people. It feels like this tangible way every single week to remind ourselves that we're part of something um, bigger than us. Bigger than us individually, bigger than us as Springbrook. Um, it binds us to the church all over the world. That's a big deal. Um, I also love it because um, it means that, that I can't skip hard things. Um, I don't know how you feel about hard stuff, but I love to skip hard stuff. And so the lectionary is sort of this way where it's like, no, 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 you're, we're going to do this. And so you have to do the hard things that you want to skip. And so uh, a lot of times on Monday mornings, I'll, I'll like uh, pick up and I'm like, okay, where, where are we going this week? And I look and I, this happened this Monday and I was like, Chad got Zacchaeus last week. Give me a good one. And then I read this, what we read today. And I was like, huh? Okay. What? Like it's bananas. Zacchaeus, seriously? Sorry. You did great. Chad did great. We'll take him on a second date. Um, Zacchaeus, it was last week, and then here we are in this text, and, um, and so like, thank you, lectionary, for this one, but, um, but, but there are, there are texts that we get to on Mondays, and I get there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, um, this is so confusing, and it's weighty, and it's difficult, and the Bible, if we're honest, the Bible is full of verses like that, and chapters like that, and texts like that, really, I mean, it is, it is full of it, and, and if I'm really honest with you, and I have been very honest with you over the last few minutes, um, uh, I, I've spent so much of my life reading things like the verses we read today, um, things that are kind of confusing, and I've spent my life reading these things, and sort of shrugging my shoulders, like, meh, like, I don't really know what that means, and I have no idea why it matters, so, We'll, we'll move on. Um, but one of my greatest hopes uh, here at Springbrook as our church is that we learn together how to read the Bible. Like we talk about it all the time. I, I feel like people told me a lot about Jesus growing up. Very few people told me like, really, how do you read the Bible? And, and how do you engage the scriptures? And, and how do you figure out what stuff means? And is Jesus really this? And, and so it's, 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 I don't like the word passion, but it's like a passion of mine that we would learn how to read the Bible. And so I think as we do that, learning how to um, read difficult or confusing texts or, or engage difficult or confusing texts is really important to learn um, if you want to follow Jesus. And so, um, so that's what we're going to do. We, uh, we'll use today and we'll learn how to sit in and under uh, sort of a confusing thing. Um, um, because here's what we find, is that sometimes in the confusing, if we sit with it long enough, uh, this, this thing happens where Jesus starts to just sort of appear, this, this new way of thinking about Jesus, this new um, picture of who Jesus is. Because Jesus, uh, he teaches so beautifully and so uh, relevantly, and, and he offers such great freedom every time he talks that, um, that the reason we engage hard stuff is for freedom. So uh, here we go. So the story starts, and uh, there are these guys, and they come to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him. And so if you have spent much time uh, at all reading the stories of Jesus, then you know that this happens a lot. 
Uh, people, particularly religious leaders in Jesus' time or political leaders in Jesus' time, they would come to him and they would like throw out a question or throw out a situation and try uh, to trick him. Chad read one last week where the religious people brought the woman caught in adultery and, and they're trying uh, to trick him. The religious people of his days are constantly trying to trap him. Uh, they want to trick him into doing something that's worth exposing him as a fraud or uh, ultimately to trick him into doing something that would um, completely end him which is in some ways what happens. So uh, these guys, the Sadducees, they come in. It's their turn to kind of poke the bear. And, um, and so they sort of follow up from um, a few verses before where another group is tricking him. They come in. It's their turn. Um, and the Sadducees are like a religious or political order. Um, so, and, 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 and so it's them. So the Sadducees, uh, they were like the upper crust of the religious political people. These were um, very powerful people, uh, wealthy men, full of religious and political clout. Uh, we can't relate because that's not how we give people power this day, right? Um, they are uh, wealthy, religious, full of power. And so uh, the first century writer Josephus says that they uh, were, so, when he writes about the Sadducees, he says they were so upper crust, they were so separate um, that they really just spent their lives trying to convince each other of everything, that they didn't even have a lot of impact on ordinary people because they were so set apart. Um, they're also incredibly conservative. Um, so uh, we talk about other, there, there were quite a few other uh, political groups, religious groups at the time. Uh, the, the Pharisees, the Zealots, uh, quite a few others. We talk about the Pharisees a lot around here and we talk about how they're like these rule makers and they make everybody follow the rules. And the Sadducees make uh, the Pharisees look like wild liberal hippies. Like the Sadducees are so strict and and so conservative. Um, they only read five books of the Hebrew scriptures. They only read the Torah, which is the first five books of the Jewish scriptures or of our Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are, those, to them, those are the only things um, that are the word of God. That's all that they read. Um, maybe an equivalent today sort of like that is uh, the churches that will only read the King James Version of the Bible. Have you heard the, the fundamentalist churches? They will only read the King James Version. Uh, side note, I was at, in a wedding one time, and we got ready um, at, a, at a church that only read the King James only version, and there was a sign that said, King James version of the Bible, if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us. And I found that incredibly enlightening because I did not realize that Jesus spoke English, first of all, you know, 500 years before it was even developed. And I also didn't realize that he read from a Bible that was, you know, 1,600 years before its time. But anyway, um, so, we've got these wealthy conservative leaders, and uh, they are religious members of a political party, and they come to Jesus, and they engage him. And this is also a side note. What's incredible about Jesus is this is happening to him all the time. These political parties are coming, and they're engaging him. And sometimes he agrees with things, them on things, and sometimes he disagrees with him on things, but he is so kind. Like, he's so kind. These people, they bring um, wild beliefs to him, and he is so kind with them. And I think I was just struck this week. Maybe it's just the, you know, ramping up of an election cycle of like, oh, my gosh, he's so kind. That was for free. Okay. <laughs> so they come to him, and they ask this question. They said, a man marries a woman, and then he dies. So his brother marries her, and then he dies. And then this continues until seven brothers have married this lady, and then she dies. And so their question to Jesus is, in the resurrection, whose husband 
is this woman's, or who, who, who is this woman's husband? In, a, in essence, what they're really asking is, in the resurrection, who owns this woman? In the resurrection, whose is she? Uh, the root of this question, like we read, um, but it, it's um, um, based on an, a law from the Old Testament, an old law from Deuteronomy. It's a, a Leverite law that Jews would have upheld, um, that, and especially um, these Jews would have upheld, that if a man were to die, his brother would marry uh, his wife, and he would have children with her in order to continue his dead brother's bloodline. And that sounds really weird to us. I was thinking about this this week. Like, if Daniel were to die, Daniel's brother is like six years old. You know, like this is this is weird stuff. So when we read it, it's hard for us to like imagine what we're talking about. But then um, it sounds kind of bogus or bizarre. But really, at the time in Deuteronomy, this was a law of compassion. It was a law of compassion toward widows who God has always valued very, very deeply. And so this was a law of care and a law of hope for a woman who would have been a widow, which would have meant that she had no way of providing for herself or any kids that she might have. It was a compassionate law uh, to provide a home for widows and children. Um, But what the Sadducees do is they take this uh, law to a ridiculous level, and they go to seven brothers, and they say, what about this girl? Whose is she in your resurrection? Um, it, it is a ridiculous question from them, but it is about what they consider to be a very ridiculous idea. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection at all. They believed that life ended when you died, that there was no resurrection. And so um, in our time today, I really just want to look at two things uh, that Jesus does in this text as he's engaging with these guys. Um, if you're a note taker, here you go. My two points. Um, the first is that Jesus engages with them um, on their level where they are. And then the second thing I want to talk about is uh, Jesus widening the view of what these guys are asking. So uh, the first ones, the Sadducees, uh, they were setting, as we said, they were setting a trap for Jesus, an intellectual trap uh, for Jesus to walk into in order to prove um, what they believed within them was uh, very untrue. That the idea of the resurrection was absolutely absurd. And so that's really what their trap is. It's less about marriage and a lot more about this idea that the resurrection is bogus. They are in their questioning making fun of Jesus. Sorry. Um, they're making fun of him. Have you ever been at the lunch table or wherever where the smart, the smartest kids are kind of talking above the person that they see as less smart than them? Like that's the picture that we're working with here. This is what Jesus is the less smart person coming uh, to the lunch table. So it's appropriate to read this and to hear the condescending snickering in the background from these guys like, watch this, get this. It's like uh, maybe when your friend gets a word or phrase wrong and then you and your other friends all look at each other and promise with your eyes not to correct them so they say the word wrong forever. Do your friends do this? Mine are the pits. They do it to me all the time. Um, this is, this, is, this is what's happening. Um, it, it's, a, it's a terrible joke. Uh, so they're asking a mocking question about the resurrection. So Jesus is openly being mocked by people. They ask this mocking question about the resurrection, which they consider to be absolutely absurd. And um, another side note, here's the thing. If you're here today and you find the resurrection to be absolutely absurd, uh, you really are in good company, not just with the Sadducees. I'm being kind of hard on them today. You are in the good company of logical brains since the beginning of time. Uh, The truth is the resurrection is absurd. It is wild. It sounds bananas. 
And my hope is if that's where you come in today, that, that you today encounter a Jesus who can, like he does to the Sadducees, speak your language, who enters into your questions about what's true and what's not without judgment and without ridicule, who draws you to, toward a mystery beyond what your logic can handle. I hope today that you encounter the Jesus who has the ability and the right to surprise you. Because to believe the resurrection means you have to believe in some mystery and you have to believe in some uh, surprise. So this is the wild question. And um, so they, they throw a pitch and Jesus takes it. And it's beautiful. And he does what he always does. It's so brilliant and it's so incredible. And he answers them in the most Jesus way possible. He, uh, with great kindness, blows freedom into their bondage. It's what he's always doing. He is so kind and he's so firm. And honestly, he kind of annihilates their, them at their own game. He, he responds to them um, by using their ball and their rules. Uh, resurrection, it is found all throughout the scriptures. It's not just a New Testament idea after the cross. The idea of resurrection also isn't just a Christian idea. Sometimes I think um, as Christians, we claim things and we're like, we're the only one that thinks this. That's not really true. Uh, first and foremost, resurrection is a Jewish idea. Um, it also, you can find resurrection ideas and other faiths, Hindu and Islam and uh, Zen Buddhism. I think the Baha'i faith has a resurrection element to it. Uh, But these are Jewish men, not Buddhist men. And so Jesus, he responds to them in his great kindness by using their words, the words that they believe are true. And he quotes Moses to them. Moses is their guy. And so he quotes him and he tells them the great news that God is the God of the living. Uh, If you spend much time reading about Jesus, you will find that no matter who he is talking to or what he seems to be talking about, he's really, truly always talking about the same thing. Jesus, every time he speaks, almost exclusively in the scriptures, centers his conversations on the kingdom of God. He's always talking about resurrection. He's always talking about the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God on this earth, the mission of God to make all things new. If you're ever in reading the Bible and Jesus is speaking and you're confused about what he's talking about, most likely in some way he's talking about the kingdom of God. And this is no different. Today is no different. He takes the opportunity to talk about things, the things that he's always talking about. He just uses their language to say it. That's kind. It isn't judgmental and it isn't mocking. It's I understand, I understand you. I see you. And so I'll talk to you the way uh, that, that you would hear. Jesus chooses to use a story that exists within their boundaries to give them eyes to see what he's about. And that is so kind to respond to them on their level in their own terms. This is really important. Jesus doesn't speak to people from above them in some sort of like Christianese that belittles the questions of people. Jesus speaks to people in a language they understand that is kind. And I think all of us would do very well to learn that. The second thing that Jesus does uh, is he invites them to take a step back and to look at things with a wider view than their current question. He invites them to take a step back to see that the most interesting question here is not whether or not there will be marriage in heaven. The far more interesting question, what they really are asking underneath their trick question is, what's heaven like? That's what they're asking. What, what, what is it? What is, what is heaven like? What is resurrection? They asked Jesus uh, in this way, um, Jesus, is there marriage in heaven? 
And Jesus, he answers. He says, marriage is of this world. But when the kingdom comes in full, there's something far greater. Jesus says, people won't marry and people will not die. Jesus answers the question that they're kind of dancing around. He answers a far better question than is there marriage in heaven. And it's in answering this better question, the question behind the question, that Jesus invites these men into a wider view and talks about the beauty and the freedom of the kingdom of God, a wider view of marriage within the kingdom of God. So Jesus says that marriage is something of this age, that marriage is something bound uh, to this world. Marriage is celebrated in the scriptures and in the history of the church as something that points outside of itself to something good and kind. Jesus isn't belittling marriage in this sentence. Um, uh, Marriage is always celebrated. At its very best, um, the Bible uh, explains marriage sort of simply like at its best, marriage is a school for what is to come. It's a school for being a resurrection person, a kingdom person. And so what Jesus is saying is not that marriage is so meaningless that it won't be in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that there will be no need for school when the kingdom of God comes in full. He isn't trying to crush our dreams of an everlasting marriage. Some of y'all are like, marriage is not in heaven? I'm out of here. And some of y'all are like, oh, thank God. (laughs) One lifetime is plenty. (laughs) Um, Uh, sorry, he isn't belittling or destroying marriage at all. What he's doing is he's widening our eyes to see and understand the kingdom of God. He's saying that if we rightly understood resurrection, then we would see that marriage is not and cannot be a full picture of what we were made for, a full picture of the kingdom. Uh, And that should not break our hearts. That shouldn't be heartbreaking because within the resurrection is a promise that all of the impartial pictures of this world will be made whole. God's kingdom coming in full means the fulfillment of all things, the renewal of all things, not the destruction of things that we like for no reason. Marriage, it is a beautiful picture of heavenly things, of the gospel, but it is not in the way it exists currently in our world a full picture of the gospel. A full picture of the kingdom. It is not a perfect picture. It's a partial one. Marriage is a partial picture of what's to come. It it has intimacy and fidelity and community and relationship, things of the kingdom of God. It is sacrament, good and holy. And at its best, it's a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. It is a good thing and a beautiful thing. But it is not the thing. That's what Jesus is saying. It is not the thing. Marriage uh, is good and beautiful, but it is not an end um, in and of itself. Marriage is not perfect and complete in and of itself. If you've been married for any length of time, I don't know, longer a year, 10 minutes, I don't know, you realize that marriage, it isn't perfect. And treating it that way, treating it as if it has the ability to be the thing, as if it is the end-all, be-all, is an unrealistic way to see marriage and an awful lot of pressure on your spouse if you're married. To treat your husband or wife or future husband or wife as if they have the ability to make all things right for you is, is not what marriage is. That is an awful amount of pressure. N.T. Wright says that marriage is a signpost that points to the divine plan of God. Marriage, it's not the thing. It is a very good thing that points to the thing. And here's what's also true. So is singleness. So is singleness. Singleness, like marriage, 
is a very good thing that points to the thing. It's what Jesus teaches and models. And we barely talk about it in the church, right? You ever heard a sermon on singleness? You're about to. <laughs> Jesus, he teaches it. He models it. He, he, singleness, he, he models the, the holiness and the embodiment of a total reliance on God, of total intimacy with God. Singleness is a picture of what is to come, of the good things of the kingdom of God, of intimacy and reliance on the Father. Singleness is a signpost pointing to the divine plan of God. And as a church, we've got to get better about talking about it. We have got to get better about talking about singleness the way we talk about marriage. Um, according to statistics, I read this week that um, in 2017, in polls, 55% of American adults, so anyone 18 or older, were married. Do you know what that means? 45% of adults are single. That's almost half. It's half. It's 2009. We're two years later. <laughs> it's, it's almost half of all people are single. And so single people sitting in this room I hope you hear that you are as much a picture of God's kingdom as a married person is a picture of God's kingdom. This is one of the reasons that Jesus exposes the smallness of the Sadducees' question. Because what he's saying is marriage is not the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God. It isn't. You, if you are single, are also embodying something holy. And so please hear me. You do not get to be someone more in the kingdom of God because you have someone. That isn't how this works. Thank God. That is a horrible misconception that I think the church is partially responsible for. So hear my apology and my repentance. Marriage is not the ultimate aim for a believer. Resurrection is. Renewal is. Marriage is a picture of what's to come. It isn't what's to come. And we have, as the church, placed marriage on an altar as an idol. And by doing that, we have devalued half of the adult population in our quest for the thing that isn't the end, that isn't the most ultimate goal. And that's terribly ironic because um, as the church, we're terrible at marriage. Do you know the statistics? Our divorce rate inside these walls is higher than outside these walls. Do you know that? We're terrible at it, and then we make it the best thing, and we say that you can't be somebody unless you do it. And then I guess you're terrible. I don't know. I don't know how it goes all the way to the end. If you're in this room and you are single, whether by calling or by circumstance, you are a gift to the church, and you are a gift to us. And if you are in this room and you are married, whether by calling or by circumstance, <laughs> you, you are a gift to the church, and you are a gift to us. We need each other. We need each other because if you are single, you have a glimpse of what's to come in the kingdom that I do not have as a married person. And as a married person, I have a glimpse of the kingdom that you do not have as a single person. We were meant to exist together. We are both incomplete pictures, uh, both partial pictures of the view of a holy thing, of the holy that is to come. We have separate callings. But we both point to a time when death is no more and rescue is the ultimate thing. Jesus answers this question to the Sadducees by talking to them in their language, by taking a step back and widening the angle. And we are amiss if all we learn from today is that we don't get to be married in heaven. Um, in fact, I, 
Honestly, uh, I was talking to Chad before, and I was like, I don't even know if we get to be married in heaven. Like, I read so many things this week, and scholars can't agree about what Jesus is saying. No one can agree. There's, there's a lot of ways to interpret this text. What Jesus offers these men and what he offers us today is something far beyond that question, far beyond a trick question. He, in their language, and hopefully today in our language, has offered us a wider view of his kingdom at work in the world, a wider view of what resurrection looks like, a wider imagination of what it could look like, a wider imagination in our theological views, an invitation to stop seeing marriage as the container that frees our soul. It isn't that container. It cannot free your soul. Marriage cannot be your freedom. If that's what you're looking for, most likely you're miserable in your marriage. It can point to freedom, but it is not fair for us to expect our spouse to be the one who sets us free. And I think what Jesus is also doing is offering us the chance to widen our social views. To widen our social views, to see beyond people who are living life exactly the way we are living life. To open up our eyes for our need for one another, for different walks of life and different callings and different seasons. To see beyond marriage and single and to find a picture of the God who makes all things new through his people. The band can come on up. Um, we're going to take a breath. We do this every week. We call it Selah. It's just a a moment to breathe. Again, we did not steal it from Kanye. We stole it from King David. We're just going to breathe. We're going to sit for a minute and let Jesus speak to us because we believe that he does that. Um, and so we'll be quiet. And if you don't believe that he does that, when do you ever get a quiet minute? So we'll just offer that to you. Um, and, and here, I was just struck by this idea today. Um, when we watch Jesus engage people that are openly mocking him and he does it with kindness, I was reminded that um, sometimes I think we get the voice of Jesus confused in our life. That we forget that when Jesus talks to people, he is not harsh, he is not tricky. He engages people with wide open arms and a wide open view with kindness and with hope. That's what Jesus' voice is. I'm not saying he'll never correct you because, oh boy, will he? I'm just saying that his correction or his voice does not come with shame. It does not come saying you are less than someone else. If those are voices you are hearing in your life, they aren't the voice of Jesus. So let's just pray and we'll just be quiet for a minute. So God, we thank you that... Um, Jesus, that you are willing to engage people where they are, that you are willing to engage us where we are, that you are willing to engage me where I am. That you use language that is familiar. That your voice is one of hope, one of glory, one of renewal, and one of resurrection, not one of shame. And so, God, I ask that... Um, that you uh, give us the courage to look inside of ourselves, to expose the ways that um, if we are married, we are, we are placing undue expectation and theology and hope in what a marriage is able to provide. I pray that you give us the courage to celebrate what it does exist for, the courage to let go of what it doesn't exist for, 
I pray for those in the room who are single. God, I pray the same prayer. Will you um, fill us with courage to look inside of ourselves, to expose the ways we hold our singleness against you? It's not wrong to long for someone, and it's not wrong to long for marriage. But God, I pray, I pray that you um, teach us to be people who, when we feel longing, we know that the ultimate end of our longing is for you. You make us a people who long after you. And will you give us eyes to see beyond ourselves? Give us eyes to see the value in what someone um, that maybe is different than us has to offer us. Thank you that you love us and that you see us. And I pray. Amen.